Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. San Diego 101. How would you describe the state of housing in San Diego? Uh, abysmal, poor, uh, unfortunate, <laughs> uh, a human made disaster. <laughs> I guess the, I'm, I'm trying to find a word that says it's a total catastrophe that is completely solvable. From Voice of San Diego, I'm Maya Sri Krishnan. And I'm Adriana Hildes. This is San Diego 101, The Housing Crisis. Housing is one of the single biggest issues in San Diego, California, and tons of places throughout the country. People who don't have a place to sleep can't live a healthy, fulfilled life. And a lot of the time, affording a home means spending a lot on rent. So much that you're living paycheck to paycheck, or you can't afford to live where you grew up. You may have heard the housing crisis being talked about a lot in the news. It's not an exaggeration to call it a crisis. Politicians up and down the state know it's a crisis. And of course, homeless people know it. People struggling to pay rent know it. They feel it every day. We just don't have enough homes for everyone. The extreme housing costs in San Diego have basically resulted in me being the last of my family here in San Diego. Um, aunts and uncles and brothers, my parents have all left uh, the immediate San Diego area because they can't afford to live here. And it means I have diminished connections with the people I love, and that's tragic. For myself, I would love to purchase a home, but even being a relatively privileged middle-class person can't afford it. It's depressing. Not having enough homes means the homes that we do have get really expensive. And it means families and communities can't stay together. Entire neighborhoods of people that have been in San Diego for generations have been priced out and forced to leave the city. It also means that in an expensive place like San Diego, a streak of bad luck can push someone into homelessness or just push them around, make it harder to live, to set up a life. I've had housing instability and insecurity most of my life, you know, all of my childhood 
and into my 30s had housing, either housing instability or housing affordability issues. So instability was just, I grew up in a poor family, and that's all I can say about that. Um, and we moved a lot, right? We moved every year. I thought that was normal. I thought it was normal for someone to go to a different school every year and live in a different place every year. We're going to tell you why it's so expensive to live in San Diego, what's driving the housing crisis, how real, documented, systemic racism has made the crisis worse, and driven a wedge between those who have homes and those who don't. And we're going to build some affordable housing with an expert right here on this podcast. That's all coming up after the break. So zoning has been, it's a very, it's probably one of the most nefarious and insidious laws that has really, I think, been put out in our country because it's, it's, it seems so common. It seems so benign. It seems so, uh, you know, how much, how, how could this be causing so much damage? And I think, we, you know, when, after George Floyd died, we, folks talked about structural racism and there was a, and it still is a big discussion. Is there really structural racism? This is structural racism. This is Ricardo Flores. He leads a group that provides funding to build cheaper homes throughout the country, county, and specifically in San Diego. He's talking about a really important piece of this housing puzzle, zoning. It is so benign. It seems so common sense to have zoning or have a house, a single family home with a front yard and a backyard. It seems so common sense to all of us, right? It's part of our fabric. But in reality, it was created for very particular reasons. And those reasons were to segregate. And it's been wildly wildly successful and you only have to go to these neighborhoods and knock on a door and knock on another door to see how successful it's been at at keeping us apart. Zoning is a law that says what you can or can't do with a piece of land. If you live in Kensington like I do, uh, your land, you can do one thing with your land. You can put a single family home on a piece of land. If you live in downtown, you can build a tower if you want. That's zoning gives you that permission. Zoning is a good thing on the fundamental side in that, you know, you what we're seeing in Barrio Logan, right, where uh, shipyards and uh, their suppliers and others coexist right next door to homes. That's a zoning challenge, right, because we really don't want to have uh, people living next door to huge factories or tanneries or, you know, things like that. So zoning on its one is to protect community, right, to to create spaces where business and industry can can do the work that they need to do but that we can live peacefully. The other part of zoning though, is the part that has not really been explored. It's so simple and so counterintuitive that people think that can't be, but the other part of zoning is strictly to enforce apartheid. Apartheid, a system of separation based on race to enforce the apartheid in our community, plain and simple. If you look, and when we look at our redlining maps in San Diego, you know, folks like to say, well, redlining is now gone and deed restrictions are of the past. There's nothing in the way, standing in the way of individuals living where they wanna live. But that's not the question. (laughs) The question hasn't been that. The question is, why is it so expensive to live in some of these neighborhoods? 
Redlining was a practice used by banks to reject home loans based on race, income, and neighborhood. The policy effectively kept black, immigrant, and other non-white families from buying homes in certain neighborhoods. That was until 1963, when a bill called the Fair Housing Act passed and banned the practice. So, apartheid and redlining. These are parts of our history that force people of color to only live in certain areas. And even though they're not technically enforced today, these old systems turn into new ones that were made to keep things the same. The city provided a history of segregation in our community up from the Spaniards to now. And in the 1920s, they point out that there was a conversation being had at the city council in which they, the council members wanted to change the deed restrictions and to provide zoning changes to the community in order to continue to reinforce the deed restrictions. Deed restrictions. Deeds are contracts that go with a piece of land. It has details about the land and who owns it. Deed restrictions, also called racial covenants, determined who could own land. White people. So that would be another incredible act, I think, that most people are unaware of in San Diego, but that they intentionally wanted to keep the community segregated, and so they they went through the path of, of what was new at the time, was called zoning. And we weren't alone. This is the 1920s. Everybody was doing this around the country. And again, the idea was to get how do we reinforce the society that we currently have uh, and, and keep, it, keep it the same way, keep it homogenous. Redlining and apartheid became deed restrictions, Ricardo says, and deed restrictions became zoning, all ways of telling you what you're allowed to do with the land around us. But the land we do have is really expensive. It used to be that cities legally barred people of certain races from living in certain neighborhoods. Now, those legal restrictions are gone, but housing costs are achieving the same result, keeping certain people out of certain neighborhoods. Yeah, that's a huge part of this. Cost. San Diego homes are really expensive. And what I tell folks is real simple. You want to go to the store and you and I both want to buy an orange. And the uh, store owner looks at you and says, you know, I love Voice of San Diego. You guys are my favorite informational uh, news magazine in San Diego. So here's your one orange, Maya. But Ricardo, you have to buy five cartons of oranges. That's what we're doing with land. So Maya can buy one orange and Ricardo has to buy five cartons of oranges. No different with land, right? If I want to live in Kensington, I either have to buy or rent 5,000 square feet of land. And so what we've been able to do with zoning is say, oh, it's very expensive to live in this neighborhood. Is it really that expensive? Or are you forcing me to buy excessive amounts of land that I don't need, which basically allows folks to say, well, you can't afford living here. Well, you could never afford living in Kensington. <laughs> <laughs> the redlining maps make that clear. Kensington, Mission Hills, Point Loma, La Jolla. They make it very, very clear that those neighborhoods were for upper class white professionals and that they people of color should, could not and should not be living in those neighborhoods. And again, they couldn't just say, well, because you're black, you can't live here or you're brown because you can't live here. So they had to be more subtle about that. And the subtle way of saying it is, well, economically, you can't live here. But is that true? So this zoning part of the housing puzzle is the biggest deal for Ricardo. It's part of the problem now, but it can also help push past our history of segregation. Yeah, he's saying if we can change the way we do zoning, the rules that dictate what you're allowed to do with a chunk of land, that can open up a ton of possibilities to make more homes, to mend old wounds, 
So he says, let's take a chunk of land. And you cut it up and you make it smaller. Lo and behold, you actually drop the price point. And when you add construction to that price point, wow, somehow magically, middle income housing appears. <laughs> right? So, same land, same value, but smaller pieces? Yes. Ricarder's arguing that we take the Kit Kat bar out of the package but break off the four little wafer sticks for four people instead of keeping it whole for one person. But you take a home that's, let's say, a million dollars to live uh, to buy and to own. That land is really what you're buying, right? You're buying the property, but the land is really what the value is there. So let's just say I take that same million-dollar piece of property or so, and I'm allowed to subdivide it into four individual parcels to sell or to build on. So now that land, one piece of that is one-fourth of the total land. Well, the price will also drop one-fourth, right? Because there's no way I can sell to you, Maya, one-fourth of a piece of land for a million dollars when you could have bought all the land for a million dollars. You'd laugh at me. You'd say, you're silly. It doesn't make any sense. So that new land value is about $250,000. That's the new land value, right? 250, 250, 250, 250, bingo, 1 million. Now you have a $250,000 parcel of land. Still pretty high, but much less than a million. Now, if you build a house on it, let's say you build, let's say it costs you to construct a new home for your family, $250,000. That's a $500,000 home where currently a million dollar home is sitting. But of course, it can't be so easy to just change how zoning works. Because those are laws, right? Rules nailed down by politicians. They're hard to make and hard to change. But there was one law passed recently by a lawmaker from San Diego, Tony Atkins. It's called SB9, stands for Senate Bill 9. SB9 says you can take a chunk of land that's zoned for a single-family home and break it up the Kit Kat way. Put two duplexes on the land, room for four families instead of one. I mean, two years ago when I was talking like this, people laughed and said, oh, you're crazy. But now with Tony Atkins, is like, you see, <laughs> we're almost there, right? The housing crisis is an issue of discrimination and segregation, Ricardo says. And it's a supply problem. We need more housing, affordable housing, structures that can sit on one plot of land but house lots of people, even more than four families. So on the other side of the break... Let's make some homes. I say that I'll have this on my gravestone if I have one of those one day, is that people hate housing and people hate poor people. And people really hate housing a lot. And it is a This is Ginger Hitsky. We heard her at the start of the episode. She moved around a lot with her family because they didn't have a stable home, always going to new schools, new homes. Uh, so the company that I own is Hitsky Development Corporation, and I build and own apartments. Now she's making homes. She's been building affordable homes for about 20 years. And when you hear affordable housing or affordable homes, that means homes reserved for poorer people. There are special metrics that governments and policy people use to say who's low or middle income for a given area. She makes apartments for people in the low income category. Working people who make, you know, between 20 
5000 and $60,000 a year. The people that you that help you at the grocery store, that wait on your tables, that maybe come and watch your kids, you know, the people that you interact with every day of your life. And since she's been making apartments for so long and seen everything that goes into it, she knows how many obstacles are in the way to get us to the amount of homes we need. Including a lot of pushback from communities who oppose projects like the ones she makes. That's why she says people hate housing and poor people. She's going to help us build some affordable housing, a crucial part of the solution to the housing crisis. So let's get to it. Nowadays, in 2021 and beyond, you would be most successful in a larger city. The city of San Diego, Chula Vista, Oceanside. So let's say I um, have a property that I've identified that I can acquire, either that I'm is going to be given to me by a government agency, given to me by, let's say, a church, right? Because that's a new thing, right? Or let's say I it's it's reasonable enough that I can buy it. So I would spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on um, having lots of designers create plans for me, and then I would take it through the public process of taking it through the community and going to the planning commission and going to city council and hopefully getting my approvals. Hopefully I will not have wasted a few hundred thousand dollars. Lots of public meetings, council meetings, and evangelizing for one project on one plot of land. So Let's assume that the city council approves it. Then the next thing I do is I start kind of walking up my funding ladder. So you start locally and I say, San Diego Housing Commission, can I have this much money? Now, as far as timing goes, I can't just walk up to them and say it. They will generally um, issue a uh, like an open calling. It's called a notice of funding availability or a NOFA. And it's basically they're saying, hey, we've got this money. Who wants it? <laughs> Come and compete for it. So I will blindly compete with other developers who have the same idea as me. And some of us will get funded and some of us will not. So for a special podcast project, let's say it works out. She gets the first round of funding. So let's say I get funded at that level. They haven't given me any money at this point. All they've said is, if you can finish getting the rest of your money, we will give you this money. So they give me a commitment. It's like an IOU, right? And so I go, great. And I take my IOU and I go to the next level in the funding, which might be the county or it might be a state agency. And then I will say, hey, state or county, I got this money over here. And if I get this money from you, I can go on to the next round and try to go get even more funding to finish this. And I will blindly compete with a bunch of other people who have the same idea because we all know when we're supposed to apply. If I'm really lucky, I will get that the first time around. This is a highly competitive time. So it might take me two or three times or I might just not be able to afford to continue to keep this up and I might have to abandon the project and anywhere along the line where I've spent a couple hundred thousand dollars to get to this point. 
Through this whole long process, Ginger and us are now spending lots and lots of money just to keep the project going, in hopes that eventually we get to the top of the funding ladder. And remember, this is even if we don't have a community breathing down our necks, yelling at us for building an apartment structure where they don't want it. From the day that I have decided to work on this project to the day that I have gotten through city council and maybe the day that I've gotten to the state, maybe if I've done, if I've been like really good and timed this thing out, like kind of amazing, I'm probably at 20 months if I've done like an incredible job and every, and the world just lined up perfectly. But more likely I'm probably at like closer to three years. And for our project, let's say we just need that one round of funding. Things are looking good. Then I will go to generally my final state agency, uh, which is in California, is the the low-income housing tax credit. It's actually, it's throughout the United States. That's going to be the highest level that anybody's going to go anywhere in the U.S. I will make an application uh, again. I will blind compete um, with lots of people, with lots of projects from throughout the state. Now, for our project, it's been three years, and we get all the funding we need. Now, it's time to build. Now we really need to get going on this thing. And that'll take about six months to get our building drawings ready to go because it's a completely different set of drawings that you use to dazzle the city council as what you use. You get a whole new set of plans that you actually use to build the apartment complex. And then let's say it'll take me 18 to 24 months to build that apartment complex. This new affordable housing project will help ease the housing crisis and give poor people a chance to live somewhere safe. It took us five years. So that would be from beginning to end in an incredibly, like, uh, perfect scenario. Okay, we made it. A new apartment building. How does it feel? I feel like Bob the Builder. Um, But no, I I feel like we did something good. But, you know, it's interesting because it took us five years. And that's if, like, with everything going right. I know. It's really crazy that it took that long, five years, to Mm -hmm. build one apartment building that may only house a dozen families. And that's if everything goes right. Right. Which... Never happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, you don't get every round of funding immediately. You pretty much always have community pushback or, or something that you have to change in the project plan um, over the course of all of those years. So, you know, five years, all of the money it took for a dozen families in the best case scenario. And that's not realistic at all. Right. And, you know, the housing crisis, it's not something that, like, you can fix in a year, right? Like it's something that keeps growing as time goes on. So like this one project that we just did took five years. Imagine like doing that for like an entire city, an entire region, you know, you have to wonder how long is it really going to take us to solve this problem? I know. And in those five years, how many more people ended up homeless? Yeah. So we asked Ginger too what she thinks the next steps are for housing in San Diego and California that could get us out of the crisis. She also pointed to SB9, the bill about splitting up land. 
That one passed pretty recently, though. So、uh, it has a lot of promise for the people who are working hard at housing, like Ginger and Ricardo. We need to keep an eye out to see if it does what it's supposed to do. And Ginger says you can't forget your power and your influence over local politics. I would say reach out to your mayor, and if you're in the city of San Diego, reach out to your mayor and to your to your city council person, and say I want more apartments built in this town. This is where I live, and I want to see more apartments here. Because I can tell you that is not something that they're hearing a lot of. They hear a lot of people who get really upset when someone's proposing to build new housing, but very rarely do they hear. And there's a, there's a small group of people that's growing、um, who are frustrated, and they're starting to be like, "Hey, you need to build more housing <laughs> because I don't want to drive to Alpine to afford to live. I want to live in North Park." <laughs> I mean, it could be the smallest email. It could be the smallest tweet. You could tweet at them. Please build more apartments in the city.、Um, it, it really does make a difference. And they look at it and they say, a kid in Barrio Logan could get to UCSD in 20 minutes. That's equity. But what if the kid in Barrio Logan lives in La Jolla? Right? We've been so used to saying. Oh, they over there deserve more. Well, what if they over there want to live over here? That's equity. San Diego one o one credits. San Diego one o one is a product of Voice of San Diego, hosted and produced by Maya Shikrishnan and Adriana Heldes. Produced, edited, and mixed by me. Nate John. Additional support from Megan Wood. Learn more about San Diego and how it works at sd101.org. That's sd101.org. San Diego 101 is made possible with support from the Lengler Benbow Foundation, the Parker Foundation, and the Seuss Foundation. Additional support from Gulper Sullivan Rivera and Osuna, and Bloodhurst and O'Riordan LLC, and the members of Voice of San Diego. Support SD one hundred one and become a member now at vosd dot org slash member. San Diego one hundred one and transmission. Goodbye.